TED Audio Collective. Hey everybody, it's Manoush here. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor Cognizant for supporting this season of ZigZag. We're so grateful. And they're doing some interesting things over at Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. They are doing research and coming up with best practices for your company and career as things change during these turbulent times. To learn more, head to cognizant.com slash future of work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T com slash future of work. Hey, Manoush. It's really great to see you're back and really miss you. This is Michael from Calgary, Alberta. So, I've been asking you all season, dear listeners, how's life? How's business? For some of you, it's going surprisingly well. I think the company responded well to COVID. We were quick to look after team members when uh, you see so many other companies closing. And it's really, really bizarre to, to get an opportunity when so much craziness is happening in the world. This is Susanna. After a very difficult first six months of the year, I have finally decided that I am starting my own business. Um, I'm about to hand in my notice next Monday. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. My name is Adam Walker Cleveland. I live in Racine, Wisconsin. When people ask, you know, hey, how are you doing? It's kind of an awkward answer because we're actually doing really good. The pandemic is good for business, which sounds horrible to say. People are looking online and looking to companies that provide materials digitally, and we happen to be one of those. But even for those of you who have been able to make the best out of these weird times, well, you have doubts too. And so many questions. My name is Cheryl. I'm calling from New York City. I'm a personal trainer with a private studio on the Upper East Side. One thing that's going right with all this is that I've had to slow down and get really clear about what's truly important to me and what my values are and whether or not my business is reflecting those values and where it isn't, how to make it so that it does. What's going wrong for me is not so much going wrong, but it's the biggest challenge, which is the limbo, the uncertainty, not knowing whether clients who have skedaddled will come back. Uh, not knowing how long my landlord will continue to give me a slight break on the rent. My name's Jeremy. I'm all the way in France. I work in tech. I just turned 26. So right now I'm at a point where I'm starting to think a little bit more long-term and trying to assess what I want to do with my life. On top of all that, there's the whole pandemic thing and the whole climate change Thing and social inequality thing and it's kind of hard thinking about your career and what you might want to do in 20-30 years when you're not even sure that society is not just gonna crumble around you and just collapse in the next five to ten years. Hello Manoush, this is Emily. I'm a very small, small business in this big, big world and I wonder what that means. What does a tiny business like me mean in the world economy? Maybe it's just good that I'm employing myself and helping people feel better on a daily basis by doing Pilates. Is that enough? This is Percy. As much as I try, I cannot find a silver lining. I just keep feeling that it sucks and I can't avoid just feeling sorry for myself and I have to do the dreaded pivot, uh, but I just don't know how. I don't know what to do. Uh, uh, just this thing that everybody keeps saying, uh, reinvent yourself. But what do you do when you don't know where to start? First of all, how annoying is it when people tell you to just pivot, reinvent yourself? Maybe if you can, just sit with where you are right now. It may take time and lots of long walks to figure out where you need to go next. 
And meanwhile, you should know you are not alone. I have got so many emails from other listeners who are finding themselves in a tough, stuck spot right now. And every day, you are going to feel different. Some days will be better. Others will be worse. And that is normal. I am feeling it too. And so I am super grateful for messages like this. This is Katie from upstate New York. Thank you for ZigZag. It's my favorite podcast to date. I feel really invested in these stories. And I wouldn't underestimate how important your voices are right now. Katie, it is thrilling to hear that this show helps you in any way. My zigzagging friends, we are a small but mighty community, and we may not agree on everything, but we are all looking for ways to align our business and career ambitions with what is also good for our fellow human beings and our souls. And yes, I will talk more about what's happening with the show at the end of the episode. But for now, thank you. And let's get to it. This is ZigZag, the business podcast about being human. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And throughout this season of the show, you've been hearing from members of my quarantine pod, a.k.a. my immediate family. Most of them are used to me wandering around with a microphone. This guy, not so much. Uh, just tell me, just so we know who you are, who are you? I'm Ali Zomorodi, your father. <laughs> yes, you're my father. And this episode is going to be about immigrants' contribution to the economy. Well, that's one part of it. And I just want to explain, like, there are many reasons why people come to the United States. Can you just explain why you did? Uh, I came here to uh, go through my residency for a specialization. I'm a medical doctor. And I met uh, your mom, who is also a doctor from Switzerland. We got married. And we decided to stay here. And... Uh, in the meantime, there was a revolution in Iran, and that made it even less likely for us to think about going there. And Switzerland was not an option because uh, I wouldn't have been able to work there. So here we are. Persian man meets Swiss woman in Connecticut because they're doctors. Getting the right visas and staying is no problem. The couple has three children, two grandchildren, and here we are. By the way, I didn't prompt my dad to say it, but Here We Are is actually the title of the memoir written by the person we're profiling today. My name is Arthi Shahani. I am an author and a journalist. Um, my most recent job job was NPR's Silicon Valley correspondent. I'm now a contributor at NPR. So far, we've tackled five systemic problems and profiled five people with big ideas on how to solve them. And this sixth episode, this final episode of the season, is about immigrants and opportunity. And Arti Shahani has a fancy job title now, but she and her immigrant father, man, they did not have it easy. I mean, on the face of it, her story is what's great about the U.S., an immigrant comes with nothing, gets multiple degrees, becomes notable citizen. But her dad's story is the flip side. Struggling to survive in the U.S. economy, provide for his family, and then ending up in prison. And these days, it's not that unusual. Last year, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, arrested around 143,000 aliens, as the government calls them. And they removed over a quarter of a million people. It is much harder now to do what Artie's family did, start their lives in the U.S. as undocumented, then get green cards and become naturalized citizens. I became an American citizen when I was like, I believe it was like 20 or 21 years old. Listening to Artie Shahani on the radio, broadcasting to millions of people about the richest companies in the world... Microsoft is not in the crosshairs right now. But when it was, back in the 1990s... You would never guess what she'd been dealing with. Arthi Shahani, NPR News, Redmond. I'm covering Google and Facebook and artificial intelligence and algorithms and, you know, disinformation campaigns. And you could hear that voice and you could hear that name and you could easily imagine, oh, she must come from a family of engineers and scientists and she landed into this gig. 
like a lot of people in Silicon Valley have assumed that. Yet that was not the case. When Arthi was little, her parents brought her and her two siblings to New York City and overstayed their tourist visas. They moved into a rundown apartment building in Flushing, Queens. And at first, her parents had trouble finding work. They relied on welfare and community support. But eventually, her father saved enough money to open his own electronics store in Midtown Manhattan. So he was selling watches and calculators on 28th Street and Broadway in Manhattan, uh, what used to be the wholesale district. <laughs> and it's now called Nomad. I was like, really? Nomad? <laughs> it's gone fancy now. But like yeah. when I was a kid, like that area was a little like dangerous. It first was. Of all. Yeah. You know, it's those big glass windows and there's every kind of like Casio and Boombox. And this is like, it's not just before Amazon. This is before even like big box retail really took off. So you're talking about like two generations earlier um, in how people buy their electronics. But, you know, it's interesting because some people would say like, oh yeah, that was like the shady part of town or something. And when I hear the word shady, like what I really think is like, oh, you mean a neighborhood where a bunch of, you know, working or lower middle class newcomers started to build their dream. My father wore polyester pants. He wore Velcro sneakers from Payless. Um, He spoke six languages, by the way. He had a photographic memory. And so, you know, if he were born into a different life circumstance, he easily could have been like the guy who's a hedge fund manager or, you know, the person who enters the foreign service. Um, So anyway, he, he ran a store. My mom was a seamstress. When we first moved to the United States, and we were undocumented. Uh, We overstayed tourist visas. So tell me why your parents came here. Yeah. So, you know, my parents were uprooted from their homeland during the partition of India and Pakistan. So quick little history lesson here. Um, When you think about the British leaving India, you might be thinking about Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, when the British left, it wasn't just some sort of peaceful march to democracy. What in fact happened was the Brits assigned a man who'd never set foot on the subcontinent to divide India and Pakistan into two different countries. Uh, The guy basically drew a line through the map. And in the real world, tens of millions of people were uprooted, forced to leave, and or murdered. So my parents, who were very young children at that time, they were born in the part of India that is now Pakistan. And they were part of the millions of people who fled south. So my father, his family was quite poor, like poor as in like even developing world standards poor. (laughs) Um, And, you know, they lived in a small kind of shack, um, outhouse for toilet, um, spread cow dung on the floors um, to redo your floors regularly, that kind of situation. Uh, no reliable electricity, that kind of thing. And dad, when he was a teenager, he left to become a migrant worker in Beirut. That catapulted his journey in basically country hopping in search of work. He eventually landed in Morocco. And my mom, her family went from the Indian subcontinent over to Spain. And they had more means than my dad's side. And from Spain to Morocco. And in Morocco, my parents had uh, gotten married and that's where me and my siblings were born. I was born in Casablanca. It sounds incredibly romantic. It does sound. It sounds glamorous. <laughs> and my parents met at a poker game, too. That's also glamorous, yes. It's like you were born into a Bond movie or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah only nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> no, so what was the truth? Like, why leave Casablanca? Why is it like, oh, we hear America's going to be make us rich? Or, like, what was the story? You know, it's, it's so interesting. And I didn't really know the specific trigger for for leaving Casablanca until I began writing the book. And, you know, my mom would say that, oh, we wanted a better life. We wanted a better life for you kids. I couldn't help but think, mom, you say you wanted a better life for us kids, but we had a crap life. What are you talking about? You know, like, why would you have been so irresponsible as to cross an ocean and choose to overstay your visas and be undocumented with three little kids' lives hanging in the balance. I was upset when I was asking her about this. Um, And that's when she told me a story I actually knew nothing about. It was effectively a story of some pretty severe abuse happening at home. Not my father abusing my mother, but my father's family 
uh, and things had gotten so bad at home, she attempted to take her own life. And I did not know that my mom had attempted suicide. That was totally news to me. It was unsuccessful. Uh, I also didn't know that when I was born and my parents brought me home from the hospital, my grandmother wouldn't hold me because I was the wrong gender. Uh, I was a girl and she felt that that was, you know, a curse and that my mom was ruining my dad's life. The point is, my family left Morocco really because <laughs> it was easier to cross the ocean than it would have been to cross the street and move out. And that's that's actually like a profound and crazy but also incredibly understandable fact. When I have made this point to people in the process of talking about my story and your story and you know his story and everyone's got a story, <laughs> the fact that America, it's freedom from so many things, including families and communities and structures that controlled you back home. So many people were fleeing from those controlling structures, and it turns out that's my family's story. So America, America was freedom for my mom in particular. It was freedom from her extended family. America was the first place where Nina Shahani got to just be herself outside of that context, and she blossomed here. I mean, she loved it. My father did not. He found America to be incredibly cold, and he thought it was really isolating. You know, like America is, and I I mean, I love my country. I really do. I've had the opportunity to travel a lot as an adult. And one thing I can safely say is that it is a much more lonely country than most others I've been to. I mean, so, okay, so you land, you end up in Queens, like a pretty down-on-its-luck apartment building. There are roaches. That's that's the bad part. A lot of roaches. Ugh, gross. Yeah. Yes. and But there's also, like, this, like, multicultural sort of, um, I mean, it's almost like Sesame Street in that, like, <laughs> all kinds, like, there was something sort of very gung-ho about it. Like, people who've come uh, to search for a new life, clearly risk-takers, a lot of them, yeah, from yeah. all over the world in this building. Yes, there are roaches, but you guys kind of had each other, not to paint like a, you know, a Pollyanna-ish no, gloss I totally over it. Had, listen, I think you put it perfectly. And I, I'd never compared my building in Flushing, Queens and the part of our life that's, you know, apartment 401. We lived in 401, one-bedroom roach then, literally woke up more than once with the roach crawling on my bare skin. It was like that kind of place. But, you know, to your point, and my mom would point this out to me, It really was the United Nations or Sesame Street or whatever you want to call it. I mean, like literally the world converging. And, you know, I'd mentioned to you that my parents were uprooted from their homeland during the partition of India and Pakistan. When my parents were fleeing for their lives as little children, Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs were at war with each other, setting trains on fire to burn the bodies inside, killing each other with machetes literally putting babies on skewers. I mean, you're talking about horrific, horrific violence. Now, fast forward to Flushing, Queens, America. Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs are living right next door to each other. They were our neighbors in 401, and they're taking care of each other's kids. They're sharing milk and sugar and food, uh, and they're petitioning to the landlord together to, you know, fix the heat in the winter. Uh, And that is, I think, a really powerful point about America that we don't—we're losing a little bit of sight of today, and I just—I'd like to emphasize it, is that America has an extraordinary capacity to disarm difference. People really do converge in this country. Um, We're talking much more right now, and we have plenty of reason to be talking much more about tribalism, about hatred, about the rise of certain kinds of nationalisms. Those are real. But still, relative to other countries, America's capacity to absorb and harmonize difference is extraordinary. And that was my upbringing. I mean, I saw it firsthand. Okay, so I want to fast forward a little bit. Two sort of extraordinary things happened to you. Um, You 
you know, as a girl who, you know, your, your grandma didn't even want you to exist back uh, in Morocco, but here it just absolutely thrived. Like, teachers saw how bright you were. You got um, a scholarship to Brearley, one of the, like, best high schools there is in New York City, in the world even. Cost a Tesla a year to attend. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you put it in, like, Silicon Valley terms. Um, <laughs> and then, but then your dad, like, things, like, a really I, I want you to explain what happened to his business. Yeah. So, you know, what happened basically, you know, as you'd mentioned, I was setting off on my dream, right? Scholarship kid at incredibly fancy private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where the rich and powerful and, you know, white and blonde people live. That I was like, whoa, I'd never seen so many white people except for on TV. And now <laughs> I was studying with them. It was amazing to me. Um, but dad, meanwhile— he started his own business. His shop, his electronics store on 28th Street and Broadway, that was the exact same block where he'd first shovel snow for $5 an hour when he first got here. And so he really made his leap. I mean, to be a boss on the same streets where he had really hit rock bottom, that was huge for him. And he seemed to be doing pretty well. The store was doing pretty well. He had a few employees. It was doing so well that a brother of his came over from Morocco to start working with dad. We sponsored him, and he got a green card along with his wife and son. And one day, mom calls me, and she's crying, and I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, Papa, he's, he's been arrested. He's at Rikers Island. I'm like, what are you talking about? Basically, what happened was that, according to New York State, my dad and his kid brother were a front for the Cali drug cartel of Colombia, and they were selling watches and calculators to clean the dirty drug money of this notorious criminal ring that was, you know, responsible for the assassination of a journalist in Jackson Heights, that was responsible for pushing drugs on little kids, that, you know, I wanted to be a prosecutor when I grew up. That was my career goal uh, when I was a kid. So hearing that my dad could have been involved in something like genuinely shady, I was, <laughs> I was so ashamed. And it's also, you know, you have to keep in mind, as like a first-generation immigrant kid, I was already dealing with, oh, no, my parents have accents, and no one else at this elite school has an accent. And I didn't need my father to get arrested. So what was going on? So it's interesting. I went to multiple court hearings. I never told people at school why, why I was missing school to go to court. And the first hearing, it really just sounded like, hey, Shahani family, you're a front for a cartel. You're bad people. It was terrifying. Fast forward a few hearings, and then a really interesting thing happens. The prosecutor uh, for New York State offers my dad and uncle a plea deal. They're like, hey, Mr. Shahani and Mr. Shahani, you can plead guilty to money laundering, and we'll give you eight-month sentences. And in fact, we'll let you serve your sentences one after the other. So one goes in while the other runs the family business, then that guy comes out and the business always has someone running it and it won't fall and you'll just do your time and get it over with. Well, that's a really interesting offer if our family business is just a front for the cartel. So I found that to be incredibly confusing. But if they did not take the eight-month sentence, here's a key detail, and if they decided to exercise their constitutional right to trial, then they could face, if convicted, they could face 13, 14 years in prison. Now, what would you do? And actually, I don't even need you to answer it. Let me answer it for you statistically. Statistically speaking, you and pretty much everybody listening to our conversation would take the plea deal. And that's because the trial penalty, as it's called, it's just too risky for most people. I mean, like, unless you're a gabillionaire who can afford, you know, appeal upon appeal upon appeal, you're not going to fight for your constitutional rights. Anyway, my dad and uncle, they take their plea bargain, and my uncle goes in first. The day he was supposed to come home to us, he went missing. Uh, for four days, we had no idea where he was. Very scary situation. And then my father calls me, and he's crying. 
And I'd never, never heard my father cry before. And I'm like, what's wrong, Dad? What's wrong? And they're like, immigration to Gretan, immigration to Gretan. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, for deportation. And you know, this was, I don't know if you've had in your life moments where you feel like a shockwave run through your system. Maybe, for example, if you're crossing the street and a car almost hits you. Like that feeling you have of like all the chemicals rushing through your body and feeling like an existential threat to your life, that's actually how I felt when my dad dropped that word, deportation. I was like, what are you talking about? Like I'd only ever heard that word in the context of Nazi Germany. Like I hadn't heard it. Even I grew up in immigrant New York and immigrant Queens. But back in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid, People were not getting rounded up. That was not part of what America was doing as a standard part of the immigrant experience. So my family was part of the front end of a new wave. It's a good reminder that what has become normal now is new, actually. It wasn't normal. It's so new. It's so new. My father was not wrong. My uncle was, in fact, taken for deportation. I assumed that... We would go into a court and say, hey, this man is a green card holder, legal permanent resident. His family members are all legal residents and naturalized U.S. citizens. And um, he already served his time. Please just let him go. I was totally wrong. My uncle was pretty much summarily deported. uh, And then my father would basically be next. At this point, did you believe that your father was guilty? Like, what, what did you think your father had done? I believed that my father was doing what everybody else in the wholesale district was doing, and that is selling watches and calculators and totally legit goods to anybody who wanted to buy them. That's it. Basically, you want to buy it? You got the money for it? Sure, we'll sell it to you. That's what my dad and uncle were doing. That's what all the other businesses on Broadway were doing. I believe that if my dad did anything wrong, it was more along the lines of not filing the right paperwork for transactions. And so, you know, selling thousands of watches and calculators, you're supposed to fill out some forms about who your buyer is. He didn't do it. Again, none of the other businesses did it. I mean, as a business correspondent, I follow businesses pretty closely. <laughs> I've, I've done enough reporting to understand that my father got a horrifically raw deal. I mean, like, really, he got screwed over for what was probably a pretty small thing. There there will be people listening, though, Arthi, who are thinking, like, well, he wasn't here legally. Strike one. That's incorrect. He was—no, no, he was a green card holder. He was a lawful permanent resident. The rest of us were naturalized U.S. citizens. But, okay, but they might say, like, he came here and overstayed his visa, and then he commits a crime, and at some point, like, why should we give him the benefit of the doubt? There are going to be people who think that. Well, I mean, sure there are, and there are people who are going to listen to this story and think, oh, he had a green card, an American citizen family, and he'd paid his time, and wait, how many resources did we spend to kick him out? Something that I really take issue with is this notion that the newcomer must be perfect to belong in this country. It's absurd. Every immigrant generation is living in the informal economy and cutting corners to make it in America. And if you want the American dream to exist, in other words, and the American dream is leaping to places that your parents could not have gotten to. It's climbing into new heights. It's that kind of ascent. If you want that dream to exist and if you don't want to kill it for everybody, you've got to give immigrants some breathing room too. I mean, if the if the barrier to entry is you have to be perfect, no one enters. I was wondering, like, did your dad—how do you even know about all these laws and paperwork? And, like, if you're, like, killing yourself to start a business and make sure your kids are okay and do transactions and just survive in this city, like, it kind of reminded me of the mortgage crisis a little bit, that some of the people who were like, okay, so this is how it's done. I sign here and then I get a house. Like, if you don't quite understand, like, how the financial system is set up, like, and nobody's telling you English is, like, your seventh language, how do you know? Well, I think that that's a really fair comparison. Like, another comparison I would make is, let's take people who drive for Uber and for Lyft. Technically, 
you're supposed to be reporting all of your income and all of your tips, and you're not supposed to be overcounting your expenses. If people were actually audited for their self-reporting, I wouldn't be surprised if many, 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 many people turned out they were doing it wrong. But who are these people? These are working-class people who are small business owners of a type, self-employed, you could say. My father was basically not some insidious front for a cartel. He was a little guy trying to make an honest living. And if he did something wrong, how do I, how do I sort of finish this thought? Like, a lot of people trying to survive end up missing paperwork they were supposed to file or cutting corners they should not have cut. But the difference is, and I know this from being a journalist, the little people who do that get pounced on unflinchingly, aggressively, whereas the big people who do it, they get off with warnings and at most a civil penalty that you know many don't even pay. I think about, for example, the company Uber. Uber is an amazing company in Silicon Valley whose primary engineering has been legal engineering, okay? It's like they have an army of lawyers basically sidestepping regulation to grow themselves in markets, even when lawmakers locally have said, you're not allowed to operate here. I've never heard it described like that, Arthi. I love that, legal engineering. But that's what Uber has done. Has Travis Kalanick been arrested? The founder? No. Never. And so I look at the way my father and other small business owners get treated in this country and literally just skewered for what are essentially really small and innocuous mistakes. And I compare it to the kind of treatment that Travis Kalanick gets. And I'm like, oh, that's just in America? You know? So I'm not trying to make the case that we should be a lawless country where people just do what they want and the borders are wide open and everyone crosses. I'm offering my family as a case study in profound disproportionality of punishment and the destruction of an ultimately good man's life. And it is that. Everyone is thinking now about the American dream. Is it alive or is it dead? If it's dying, how do we resuscitate it? And a really basic part of it is that you have to have a real safety net where working people are not plunged into permanent unemployment, loss of all that they have as they're trying to make it along the way. You know, like if, if you treated working people with the same kind of understanding and deference that we treat the rich, we'd have a lot more dream happening. Arthi traces the beginning of the end of that dream back to the 90s, when the Clinton administration passed new laws that put any immigrant, even naturalized citizens, on a fast track to deportation if they committed any crime. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, and all immigrants were suspect. Many were forced to leave the country. As for Arthi's dad, Namdev Shahani, after he served his eight months in prison, Artie worked four years to keep him from being deported. She was successful. To help other immigrants fighting deportation, she spent much of her 20s as an activist, founding a nonprofit called Families for Freedom. Eventually, Artie got her master's in public policy at Harvard, and she started a new life as a journalist for NPR. But when she began writing her memoir, she went back in time to try and make sense of what had happened to her dad, including confronting the judge who first sentenced him. What that judge told her when we come back in just a minute. Hey everyone, Manoush here. A quick shout out to Cognizant for sponsoring this season of ZigZag. As you know, investigating the transformation of tech and business is kind of my thing. And it's what Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work does too. They research how work is changing and will change because of new technology and big global events. One of their recent reports that caught my eye 
Five Green-Collar Jobs of the Future. It describes specific careers that will help us all fight climate change and can help you strategize your next business or career move. I mean, have you ever heard of a Tidewater architect? Very cool. For all their reports, books, podcasts, and more, head to Cognizant.com slash Future of Work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T dot com slash Future of Work. So here's a fascinating statistic. Immigrants account for roughly 28% of all small business owners in the U.S. They are two times more likely to become entrepreneurs than native-born business people. So we need them to make jobs. Keep that in mind as we get back to Arthi. So a really odd thing happened to her after her dad got out of prison. A jailer from Rikers Island pinged her on LinkedIn, wanting to connect. And she's like, okay, maybe he heard me on NPR. They also had people in common on the platform. And the two of them ended up getting coffee. We got together. He asked me why I was interested in Rikers and criminal justice, because it was evident from our conversations that I was. And I was like, oh, my father was locked up at Rikers. He was not expecting that answer. I knew he wasn't going to expect that answer. I kind of dropped it there. And then he asked me a bit about who the judge was in the case. And I was like, oh, I told him, oh, this guy, Joel Blumenfeld. And he's like, oh, is that right? That guy's my very best friend. So he offered to introduce or reintroduce me to the judge. And then the judge invited me to come visit him in his chambers in the Queen's Criminal Courthouse. And just to explain this, the daughter of a defendant does not, in general, hang out with a judge in his chambers. That doesn't happen for people. But I didn't tell my father about it. I didn't tell anyone in my family I was going to do it. I go into Queen's, walk up the steps to his courthouse, hand the bailiff my card, and I'm like, hey, I'm here to see the judge. Bailiff walks me back to the chambers. Judge opens the door. Judge is smaller than I remember him. Like, I remember him as being, like, this huge towering figure in billowing black robes, and now he's, like, a nice little old man. And, you know, before I come in, really, to his office, before I sit down on the couch, you know, I think before he even shook hands, the judge tells me, I mean, literally, first words out of his mouth, your father and uncle should never have taken that guilty plea. What a mistake. I literally felt like someone had punched my stomach. I wanted to vomit. Um, I wanted to get the hell out of his chambers. And I thought to myself, Arfi, why are you doing this? Why are you here? This is a mistake. Stop like poking into the past. You're going to get stuck there. Um, and go enjoy and pay attention to your nice new life. Um, so that was a, it was a very hard meeting. I will say this, that... From where the judge was standing, in his words, he saw two family guys running a shop. Maybe they did something stupid, but again, this is his words, nothing that warranted destroying their lives and their livelihood. And he thinks they got a bum deal. One of the things that you talk about a lot in the book is that As a daughter coming to the United States, your father was part of a patriarchy where men do the earning and women and girls uh, do whatever the men tell them to do, basically. But because you were really the American in the family, you and your siblings, like, the power dynamic shifted immensely. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's both the power dynamic shifted and also my innate nature was allowed to come out in this country in a way that it would not have been allowed, let's say, uh, where I was born. When the legal problems kept evolving and escalating and evolving and escalating, there came a point at which my dad started started to turn to me for help. And it happened because he saw that oh, my youngest daughter seems to have a facility for this stuff. She seems to understand what's going on. She seems comfortable asking questions of lawyers. And so, you know, the role that would have been reserved for the eldest son ended up falling on the youngest daughter, in part because 
you know, maybe I have a more litigious mind than other people in my family. So <laughs> it's sort of a good fit for it. But also because in this country, it's okay for that to happen. It wasn't shameful for my father to talk to his daughter about things the way it would have been maybe back home, so to speak. But did he feel comfortable with that? I think he became comfortable with that. I don't think he started that way. You know, my editor asked me a really fascinating question while I was writing this book. She was like, Arthi, if your dad never got arrested, what would your relationship have been like with him? It's hard to know, but what I can say is that growing up, particularly as a teenager, I was not fond of my father because I thought he was like an old world kind of backward patriarchal guy. And, you know, he complained about my provocative clothing and my big mouth and, you know, like he would never have imagined that this mouth could have gotten me like a career with the well-paying job in journalism. <laughs> you know, like that's that's only in America. Um, that sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because in any other country, your mouth's a liability for marriage, you know. But when my editor asked me that, I had to reflect. I was like, when my dad's life started falling apart because he basically became the fall guy for a a crap, failed drug war investigation by New York State. That's really what happened to him. When his life started falling apart, after my initial like shame and anger, I started to pay attention. And I started to feel like what was going on was actually wrong. And that someone who was fundamentally a good human and not a threat to society was being punished over and over and over again. And you know, I stopped going to college so I could fight his case. Um, and I visited him a lot at Rikers Island for the time that he was there. And in that time, I think, you know, my father saw me sacrifice. He saw me do things that he did for his family when he was a kid. And I think that for the first time as adults, we really related to each other, that he saw in me the kind of sense of responsibility and hard work that he'd had for his entire life, you know, for him starting as a teenager, literally feeding 13 people. For what I was doing was much smaller, that I don't want to romanticize it. But, you know, it's fair to say over the course of his life falling apart, he and I became best friends. That was unexpected. And yeah, that is unexpected. I, I want to ask you about, <laughs> there's this one story that you tell in the book that I just, I I was laughing and crying at the same time. And and you're, you're living in Silicon Valley, it's your fancy life, as you call it, NPR correspondent, and you go out on a date. And could you, would you mind sharing that story? Oh, yeah. Um, I... I dated a lot, <laughs> uh, went out on on different dates, and I ended up going out with this guy a handful of times who's involved in politics, and he had asked me, and this was very early on, it's not like, you know, we were like literally just, you know, going to dinners and like the movie together. It wasn't, it, it was not a serious anything yet. He had political aspirations, running for office and whatnot. I was sitting in his car, we had just finished the dinner, he was dropping me home, he he had, like, something serious on his mind, and he wanted to talk to me about it. He was like, hey, can I ask you a serious question? And I thought that was so strange because it's like, I think this was, like, the third time that we were going out. So it's like, you already have a serious question. <laughs> um, and I didn't know what it was. And he was like, how do you think your dad's whole story would affect my political career? Whoa. <sighs> I remember, I remember hearing that and thinking two things. One thought was, have you been Googling me? <laughs> and I'm sure he was. Clearly. Um, and two was, when you say whole story, do you mean the part about him being convicted for a first-time nonviolent offense and the judge said he was disproportionately punished for the relatively small thing he'd done? Do you mean that part of it? Or do you mean the part of it where he was left stateless as a child and supporting a family of 13 by the time he was a teenager? Or, like, what what part of his whole story are you talking about? Do you actually know his whole story? So I, I'm sitting in the car with this guy, and I remember feeling so angry, like the kind of rage where I wanted to punch him in the face. But for some reason, I the anger couldn't come out. Like, it was just bottled up inside of me. And this is really uncharacteristic of me. 
But I basically diplomatically said, like, um, I'm not sure. But, you know, I can understand why you would worry about that. And go f*** yourself. (laughs) Well, only that's not what I said. Anyone who has been out on a date with somebody who just summarily insults your parents, you know, you probably should tell them to go f themselves. <laughs> um, but that's just, that's not the, that's not what came out of me. But you never went out on another date. No, no, that was the end. That was the end. I mean, I, you know, I have a great deal of pride in my family and the idea of spending time with somebody who would insult my father so deeply, I couldn't stomach that. Arte, I want to use the last minutes that we have to sort of get a little philosophical. So the show is zigzag. We call it the business show about being human. And when I read your book, I was like, oh, my God, there are zigzags all over the place from your parents' story as immigrants to sort of the way that business works here in America with his electronics store in Manhattan to the way it intersects with immigration laws and a country that was built on hard work from immigrants to this place where we're fearful of immigrants as well to your own story of child of immigrants, first generation, growing up very poor, going to this fancy school in Manhattan. And then you went to Harvard and you ended up at NPR. And like, there are just zigzags all over the place. And I guess I'm just sort of wondering, like, when you look at it, is it unusual, your story, your zigzag? Or is it like the more that you've been traveling and talking to people about your book and telling your story, does it feel like there's something sort of quintessential to it? Oh, I think it's a quintessentially American story. (laughs) I think that to be born in a family where things are precarious, to find your own escape route, or rather for certain small numbers of caring adults around you to help you build an escape route, to have opportunities that your parents couldn't even imagine, that you couldn't even imagine existed, while also seeing them struggle. You know, me living the American dream and my father living the full-on nightmare, and those coexisting in the same family, that is quintessentially American. And in terms of your own identity, so much of it, which I didn't realize, so much of your life was wrapped up in this helping him sort of navigate the legal system, fighting for immigrant rights more generally. You were an activist. I had no idea. And then you took a very sharp turn and became a journalist, which is really unusual for an activist to become a journalist. And I'm wondering, where are you now in your path? What I realize is that in my activism, in my journalism, I am a storyteller who cares about justice. That's who I am. It's not actually that complicated. And so there's a skill set, you know, and this is like an interesting thing to do, right? Like this is the career advice part of the conversation. What I would recommend to people is figure out what is it you're really motivated to do. And by that, I don't mean name a sector. Don't say, oh, finance or law or biotech. No, don't name a sector. Think about what it is you're actually passionate to do. What is the skill that you want to cultivate and shine and develop and use day in and day out, you know, with tens of thousands of hours applied to being better and better and better at it? That skill set you can take with you across industries. So my zigzag was, huh, I am someone who loves to tell stories. I love interviewing and reading and writing and putting it together. And I care about justice. Well, that skill set, storyteller who cares about justice, I used it in one industry. You could call it industry and nonprofit work in New York City, my hometown. Then I pivoted and I used it in another industry, Silicon Valley business journalism. I'll probably pivot again and use it in another context. I haven't fully defined that out, but the consistent skill set that I seek to cultivate and take with me on life's journey across sectors, that's my approach. And that's actually something I learned in Silicon Valley. This is what I've learned from business leaders. You don't have to put yourself in a box. You don't have to say, oh, I started in this industry and this is the only place I can be. You're actually not stuck. Think about what your core skills are and allow yourself the gift of mobility. But you clearly have also taken from Silicon Valley to know what your mission statement is. I think mom taught me that. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. fair enough. Give, yeah, let's give credit to your mom. Yeah. Um, Arthi, again, thank you so, so much. Thank you. 
Arthi Shahani's book, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares, a memoir, is out in paperback this fall. I cannot recommend it enough. And I really feel like her family story says so much about the future of this country, how our economy works, entrepreneurship, and why so many of us, we want to reinvent our careers or businesses or even the capitalist system so that it feels a bit more humane, right? And, you know, I just really hope all six episodes of this season of ZigZag helped you keep that flame alive in yourself. Just making the season did so for me. Like I said, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull it off without Jen. It's not been quite as fun, but it has been so satisfying. So thank you. And here's what happens next. Got a lot to share, so bear with me. Okay, some of you have asked how you can support ZigZag. It's really simple. Please tell three people about the show. Keep this fifth season circulating amongst people who care about aligning their work with their values. And of course, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, because then that stupid algorithm will suggest the show to more people. And as for season six, I'm in the midst of figuring it out. The best way to find out what's happening and continue to stay in touch with me is by signing up for my newsletter. I try to put it out about every other week with articles I think you should know about and links to the stuff I'm working on at my other job as host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. Please sign up at zigzagpod.com. I'm hoping to do something interactive for season six, kind of like the Boredom Brilliant project that I wrote my book about. So if you've got an idea of what would be helpful for you, kind of like a week-long challenge, email me at zigzag at stableg.com. The team that made this episode includes David Herman, Maria Wartel, Dan DeZula, and Armin Zamarodi. Lauren Reimer did the illustrations. Also, always a thank you to Jen Poyant. And a big thank you to the team at TED who made this season possible. Of course, I gotta give a shout out to my willing and supportive family, husband Josh, son Kai, daughter Soraya, sister Gita, brother Armin, mom Bergel, and dad Ollie. What a summer it has been. ZigZag is a member of the TED family of podcasts and comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening.